Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. John Pielli here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Just a reminder, if you want to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. We'll keep this uh, baseball discussion interactive. And we're going to start out by talking with MTR Media CEO Bill Zeltman. And Bill, of course, had a big part in the success of the Passball Show, a big-time Philly fan. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot. Hi, John Pielli. I'm here with a guy that obviously has had a big part in the success of the Passball Show through his first 100-plus episodes, the CEO of MTR Media. And, of course, you can listen to him every day from 7 to 9 uh, on the MTR Morning Throwdown, and that's Bill Zeltman. Bill, what's going on, man? Okay, good morning. Uh, baseball, man. Tell you what, this is, uh, even though these are hard teams are in it, this is still one of those fun times to be watching baseball all through the playoffs. No question, and I'll tell you what, what's the most interesting part about it is that, you know, if, you, if you're watching the games like, like you and I are on a day-in and day-out basis, you find, that, you find that this postseason is really starting to take the shape of something that, that, that is going to go up with the better postseasons that we've seen over the last several years. Uh, you know, it's funny, when your team's not in it, you cheer for five games or seven games or, you know, whatever, whatever the maximum is, um, and, uh, you know, Whenever you see these teams go to those final games, it just it creates such a buzz and such an energy. And, you know, it can be a little bit of a baseball purist myself. What I love is uh, to see those game fives or game sevens end up in the eighth inning with a nothing-nothing score or a one-one score and your pitcher just dueling. Uh, it's just fantastic. You can hang out every pitch. Yeah, no question. I'll tell you, you know, you look at places like Pittsburgh and, you know, even even Cleveland for a one game. You know, the, the, the cities that don't get to experience playoff baseball on a year-in, year-out basis, I tell you, it's something special to really watch the scene and how the fans come out and support these teams, as opposed to the teams that have become staples and just kind of uh, make it a, a regular thing to be in the postseason. Well, let, me, let me tell you a quick story about that. I was in Atlanta last week. Game one of the uh, NL uh, Divisional Series, Clayton Kershaw on the mound, hours before the game, and there are tickets on sale on StubHub for $12. Wow. I could have, uh, I, yeah, I had a ticket because it was just there. There was a single available, 
uh, in the first level in the infield on the first base side for $65. I thought to myself, if this was Philadelphia, that is a team that's you know, been there, obviously, but even you know, with them being there five years in a row, you're going to get the stadium anywhere. You're going to get standing room for $65. Uh, it was just, it, it, it was one of those things, and, and, and then you look and you see a PNC Park for that one game, you know, that one game playoff, or like you said, you see, uh, I don't want to call it the tank progressive field uh, with the Indians. The electricity and the excitement of the cities, I love seeing a, a city that hasn't had it in a little while get in. And, of course, Pittsburgh was a, was a huge one because it was 21 years. Yeah, absolutely, and I tell you, you see it, it. You know, even the games that are that are there now. I mean, they they've gone out, gone crazy, supporting their team, and you know, I've I've all been about parity in Major League Baseball. I like to see every team get their shot. I like to see uh, the teams, the best teams, come to the top when there's a level playing field. And I think I think you can make a case that Major League Baseball, maybe not intentionally, but based on the amount of teams that are trying, and they're and they're you know, there's different ways to build a team, but. Uh, you, have, you have to say that going into you know this season, even going into next season, uh, it, it, it's pretty much wide open as far as what you think could be the playoff teams on a given year now. Well, you know, I've always had Jason Stark every year, and you can Google this for, for listeners that want to check it out. Uh, every year, like, he, he calls it an obligatory uh, article about parity in baseball and the fact that baseball is the sport that doesn't have the salary cap. Now, they've insisted the luxury cap, which... Um, you know, I, I have mixed feelings on the luxury cap uh, tax, but they, you know, they, but even before they instituted it, baseball has always had more parity in teams that make the playoffs than any of the other sports. You look at the NFL, um, and I, I, you know, my, my complaint with the NFL has always been, I feel like they dumbed down these teams. You're never going to see a team again like those early '90s Cowboys teams, or you think like the, the the steel curtain in the '70s. Because the problem is, is in today's reality of a, of a hard salary cap, you can't keep all of those great players on the team. So every team's going to have its flaws. Now, the good thing about that is that it should create opportunities for all the teams. But in the other three major sports, it just hasn't. And the truth is, is you've had doormat teams in baseball, uh, Pittsburgh and, and Kansas City being the two of, two of the worst that I can think of. But beyond those two teams, we have seen teams with, with – such small payrolls, but the ability to bring in a good manager, to have good player development, and all those other things uh, that we've been able to see uh, teams like the Tampa Bay Rays uh, compete year in and year out with teams that have three times the salary of what they have. And an example of this, I wrote an article about this some years back, and I should reprinted it a couple times because it got uh, uh, quite a bit of reads, was, a, um, was about the Cleveland Indians and how in the Chicago uh, days back then, how they did it right. They would bring these players up, bring them through. When they, before their arbitration eligibility was over, they'd extend them a year or two past, take like Emmanuel Ramirez and, and those types of guys. And then when they would get to the big free agent money, most of those guys walked away. And a lot of them were never the same guys. I mean, think about Jim Tony. When Tony went to Philadelphia, he had that monster season the first year. And then after that, he really just, his career fell down. Um, and if a team can continue to bring those guys through and do player development and, and, and make, it, you know, make it work that way, they can compete in the way baseball is set up. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, well, baseball doesn't have to go with a salary cap to make it, uh, make it fair. They need, to have, they need to continue to have creative owners that make this work. Now, very 
Sure, and I'll tell you one thing that obviously has helped a lot of teams, particularly the Oakland Athletics, and, you know, a lot of teams are starting to go towards the analytics side and, you know, on-base percentage, and, you know, they're, they're starting to look at different things that weren't really looked at before, and that allows certain teams to be able to make up ground that they may not have in certain areas. But, listen, I, I think you look at there's many different ways to build a team in baseball, and that's what makes it great is that you don't necessarily have to follow one set model. You know, there's teams that go out there, let's say, the, you know, the 2009 New York Yankees that, you know, buy CC Sabathia and Mark Teixeira and A.J. Burnett and win a World Series. And then there's other teams that have spent just the amount of money on similar type of players that haven't been able to do it. And then there's other teams that, you know, go through the draft, they build a good farm system, they bring the right type of guys in, and they're able to build a championship that way. Yeah, I, mean, I look at the Cardinals and the Braves as those teams that just continue. Every time you turn around, some, some water you know, is coming out of that farm system that just really contributes to the big league level. And, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, they, they learn to use analytics. They learn to um, put together a series of drafting. Um, you know, so, so some teams say we take the best player, regardless of what the position is, whatever our need is, we take the best player always. Some say we take the best physical athlete, and they go that route and say we can teach somebody how to hit and throw and whatever, but we can't teach them how to run the field. Uh, and that was years in St. Louis Cardinals did that in the 1980s. And, you know, obviously you see what happened with guys like Vince Coleman and, and, and William P. And, and Tommy Hur and those types of guys, Randy Van Swike. Um, so everybody does use a different a different theory and have a, a, a different set of it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But, uh, there, you know, there's not one uniform way that you watch teams go out and say, this is the right approach and the only way that you can win in this game. And I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, very true, man. Once again, John Piala here with Bill Zeltman. Now, uh, you know, in regards to the playoffs this year, has there been one team in particular that has kind of impressed you the most as far as, as number one, its performance, and number two, its overall, uh, uh, you know, compilation of what the team looks like as far as being a winning team? Is there one team that kind of stands out to you? Uh, personally, I just think the Dodgers are unbeatable. Um, you know, if I, had to, if I had to lay down uh, some money on this, I'd say the Dodgers probably are going to win the first World Series since 1988. Um, I, I just, I feel like that team's stacked top to bottom. The other team, though, which is a little bit more of a, of a dark horse, so I've liked since spring training, uh, especially dark horse, because right now they're, they're down in their series, is the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. And I just love the way Joe Madden uh, manages. I love the way he gets his team up. He keeps his team positive. Uh, he's not orthodox at all, but he uh, he finds ways to win. And you know, um, we'll, you know, we'll see. And by the time the Bears, we'll know. But uh, I guess I have this, this feeling in the back of my mind that you're going to at least see Tampa take this series to the to the uh, deciding game, and I wouldn't be shocked if they won. Yeah, listen, I wouldn't be surprised either. I tell you, they they, they brought good pitching, and what, what has been kind of weird about it is the fact that Matt Moore and David Price didn't pitch well in the first two games of that series, and you would figure if they don't get good starting pitching, they got absolutely no chance. You know, Evan Longoria hitting the home run the other day, the fact that, you know, they're able to come out, you know, Lobatone hits the walk-off home run which off of Koji Yohara, which I don't think anybody would have expected to see last night. 
uh, you know, I think I think the Rays have you know have a little bit of uh, you know momentum going if they could somehow uh, get the, get that series to a fifth game, anything could happen. But you know, in in, in regards to the, to the rest of the race, I mean, you look at a team like the Detroit Tigers, who on on, pa- on paper just look like they're so good. They have the offense, you know, from Torrey Hunter to Victor Martinez, of course, with Cabrera and Fielder in the middle. They got the three top starting pitchers. Uh, they they just look like a powerhouse, but they seem to be in, in this postseason, particularly in these games against the Oakland Athletics. They, they have a they have a lot of vulnerability. I mean, this is a team that really wouldn't surprise a lot of people now if they were picked off. Something that I don't think a lot of us would have said going into the season and going into the postseason. I think they have to go to the World Series uh, in March while we get our picks. And, uh, I, still think they have, I still think they have a good shot at that, but I think you're absolutely right, John. We, uh, this is a team that, that when they, um, you know, when you look at them on paper, look, I, I said going into the playoffs too, I said Dodgers, Dodgers, uh, Tigers, um, but they're just, they don't look good right now. Like something's not right, something's, something's, you know, when you, when you look at that lineup, and Joe Zumbarlager goes out there and pitches a game that he pitches and loses, something's wrong. Nah, very true, and I tell you, it's all going to come down to the help of Miguel Cabrera. We all know that he's been he's been battling the leg problems since really the you know the better part of September. And if you know if Miguel Cabrera is not Miguel Cabrera, that Tiger team looks totally different. And I I think that has a lot to do with their struggles. All right, yeah, I agree. Now, um, you know, let's face it. When you when you have a guy like that in a lineup. Uh, the other hitters all learn to rely on him, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, we can we can debate that a whole off season. Um, but it's, but they do. They learn to rely on a guy like that being there and getting those big hits and, and continuing to you know put up batting championship type numbers, put up home run title type numbers, and driving a ton of runs. So. Now, very interesting to look at. Once again, John Pialli here with Phil Zeltman. And we're going to touch a little bit about the Phillies. And, of course, the Phillies went through a lot this year. A team that I, I expected to still be a postseason type of team. I know you felt the same way. Uh, you know, a season that certainly didn't go the way that they wanted it to. I know a lot had to do with injuries. A lot had to do with some uh, some inconsistent play, whether it's some, you know, some of the offensive players not establishing themselves enough, the young players maybe not getting up here, you know, early enough. And, of course, it culminates with the managerial change to Ryan Sandberg, who will be the manager going forward. Uh, what's, what's your uh, first of all your recap of what you felt was uh, the biggest uh, the biggest thing that kept the Phillies back this season? You know, I I, um, I was against the, the managerial change when it happened. Uh, looking back, I think it was the right decision. But quite frankly, Charlie Manuel somehow, some way, lost this team at the All Star break. Uh, this was a team. But it was tied with the Los Angeles Dodgers going into the All-Star break. They had everything you could possibly want going your way to go your way. Chase Utley had come back off the disabled list, was, was, was hitting the ball away that, that we haven't seen Chase Utley hit since 2009. Uh, he was he healthy. I mean, you could tell he was apparently healthy. Um, of course, you had uh, Cole Hamilton struggled early, and, and you set up the All-Star break and said, if Cole Hamilton was just a 500 pitcher, which is not all that bad kind of Cole Hamill, this would be a first-place team. And that's the conversations we had at the All-Star break. And, uh, the, 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 you know, the month of July came, and this team just fell apart. Applebaum started to have his issues. He had that week where he blew what, two, three games. Um, he didn't have a save for nearly six weeks in the season, which is an unbelievable fact. Uh, the team just, the team just melted right there. And the magic that was Charlie Manuel of being able to be a 
say, you know, it was this particular, it was the Ryan Howard injury, or it was, or it was the loss of Roy Halliday, or any of the other injuries that, that, that happened, um, that, that just doesn't, that, that you can't do that. I think, it was a, I think it was a team effort, but I think that it goes deeper into this, John. I think that it goes to uh, how this team is constructed. When you look at a particular team, uh, or, or at this particular team, and you go through position by position, and you make a couple assumptions. You assume that, you know, coming back next year, Ryan Howard's going to be okay. Maybe hit 30 home runs. I think he's got a crazy assumption if he's healthy. You, you say that Chase Upley's going to be able to play in 130 games. And you go around, around, the, around the bases, you look and you say, wow, this, thing, this team's got a, a, a pretty good lineup, and, and this should be a pretty good team. But then you look at what this group does collectively, and you realize that there's a dysfunction in there somewhere. And part of it goes back to what we were talking about in our last conversation, uh, is Ruben Amaro doesn't believe in a lot of the analytics. He doesn't believe in, um, uh, you know, on base percentage mattering. Uh, he doesn't, he, he said that it's all about production. If a guy hits 315, who cares if he never walks? Um, and, and, and I think that the problem stems with what, what Ruben's done there. Uh, to see what the Phillies need to do this offseason, they need to go get a they need to go get a, a, a right-handed bat to probably play right field um, or left field. You know, somebody that can go out and, and really bang the ball around uh, from the right side of the plate and slot the middle of that lineup uh, between Howard and little bit Dominic Brown probably uh, in that five spot. They need to get uh, another bona fide setup man. You can't rely that Mike Adams is going to come back. I expect him to come back. I expect him to be okay. But they need a second arm there to, to, to bolster that. They need to go get a right-handed pitcher to swap between uh, Hamilton Lee. Uh, and they need to figure out the bottom of that rotation. They don't have three, four, or five right now. So, uh, and the bigger thing of all of it is they're going to have a lot of young players. Cody Ashley's going to be given a shot. Uh, but Kyle Franco is probably going to be given an invitation to Giggly Cabot to possibly break with the team. Darren Ross is going to see some playing time. Don Brown's still very young. When you mix all these things together, if you have to get uh, bona fide bench players that can come off and contribute. The difference between Ryan Sandberg and Charlie Manuel is Ryan Sandberg's a National League guy. He's not the guy that wants to set lineup out there all the time and doesn't want to change things around. He wants to play. He wants to use 25 guys. Uh, and he's going to use those best players. And if those best players are guys that aren't productive, like the best players the Phillies have had over the last couple of years, this team's really going to be stuck. And when I sit there and give you this wish list, John, I, you, you have to realize this is not going to be easy, even for a Philadelphia Phillies team that has some money to spend, uh, to get all these pieces. So I, I, I have question marks about whether or not the Phillies will get back to the point where you say, yeah, this is a perennial playoff team, or if this is a team that might be on the cusp of, you know, another third-place finish, anyway, finish third this year, but, you know, being in that third-place position again, maybe 82, 83, 84 wins and, and, and just looking from the outside in. Now, it's going to be tough to look at because you got the whole offseason ahead of you. You really don't know. Uh, what kind of moves they're going to be able to make? Obviously, you, you would you would trust that uh, your wish list is pretty similar to what Ruben Amaro's wish list is, and you, you got to figure you guys aren't that far off. I mean, he wants the team to be competitive. He he's aware of the needs of the team, just like you are, just like you know anybody else that looks at the game is. So uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this ends up turning out. Um, you know, one question I always want to ask you. I know we've touched on this before. Um, the, the market for trades, you know that that's a, that's a way that 
you know, you make a trade, you move a piece to get a piece, kind of allows you to make a, a, a lateral move to get your team better as opposed to just spending money on the free agent market. Is there anybody in your mind that you could see the Phillies dealing that has some value, maybe an integral part of this team, but simply being flipped for another type of player could make the Phillies a better organization, a better team? in some way, shape, or form. A very interesting to see how the season turns out and obviously the offseason and obviously uh, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about it as we get between now and March. Bill, of course, you can check him out on uh, you know the morning throwdown from 7 to 9 every morning, Monday through Friday. Him and Mike Sanfilippo do a phenomenal job breaking down everything going on in sports. And so, Bill, listen, thanks for having some time, man. I'll definitely talk to you soon. Always a pleasure speaking with Bill Zeltman. Of course, he's uh, you know he does a phenomenal job, and honestly, there there are few people that know about much as about baseball and its history as Bill Zeltman. So make sure when you get a chance, check out some of his articles on mtrmedia.com. He writes just about every day, 
And, you know, like I said, this guy has a knowledge of the game. He's a big-time Philly fan but knows his game of baseball. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of this show. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is a family. Through one of the toughest years in my life, my ACS family stood beside me. My teachers were loving and supportive, and my friends shined God's love in different ways to make each day brighter. Atlanta Christian has a nurturing academic environment and is a second home to me. I am thankful for the school and family with which God has blessed me. Join us for Open House every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7, 24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. M-T-R. Welcome back. John Pielli here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. And obviously a lot of stuff going on in Major League Baseball. We can touch a little bit about the 2013 postseason, which obviously has been a lot of good action as we get set for the League Championship Series, which will be coming up if they haven't started yet. They're going to be starting soon. But I do want to get into some stuff going on. And uh, obviously some anniversaries come up just about every one of our shows. And there's things that I like to go back and reflect on. And One thing that happened, obviously, that a lot of people are very familiar with was 1978 one-game playoff between the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. And this was a a huge situation because not too many times did uh, teams end up finishing the season in, in a tie. And you know about the rivalry between the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, something that was very passionate. You know, the teams didn't like each other, no question. Uh, could be made about it, but the Red Sox were kind of on the rise a little bit. The Red Sox had made it to the 1975 World Series and lost to the Cincinnati Reds. The Yankees did the same a year later in 1976, and the Red Sox were kind of back, and the Yankees and Red Sox were the two top teams in the American League East, battling tooth and neck, back and forth, 
and a situation where the Boston Red Sox led in the middle of July by 14 games in this race. And they, they had gained a one-game lead with seven games to play after the Yankees had ended up going on a ridiculous run to get to a point where they were actually ahead of the Red Sox. And uh, with seven games to go, the Yankees had won their last six, but so did the Red Sox. And it came down to the last game of the season where the Red Sox won their final game and the Yankees lost to the Cleveland Indians to force a one-game playoff, which, of course, was played at, at uh, Fenway Park in Boston. The Yankees started Ron Guidry, who came into a game of a 24-3 and record. The Red Sox countered with Mike Torres. And Mike Torres, of course, was remembered for having a big role in the Yankees World Series win of a year earlier in 1977. And it's something that... Uh, you know, you know the Yan- Yankee fans. You know, were probably a little bitter towards Mike Torres since he left the Yankees and went to the rival Boston Red Sox. But Torres was obviously brought over by the Boston Red Sox with the thought that he could help their pitching staff, and he, he had done a pretty good job uh, up until really the last month of the season where he had started to struggle. But you know, the situation where he got Torres versus Guidry, two guys that were a part of the pitching staff of the 1977 World Series champion New York Yankees. And Torres had come in, six consecutive losses coming into that game. And the Yankees were in Fenway Park. And you would think this would be an advantage for the Boston Red Sox coming in. But remember, uh, within a month before, it was the Yankees that came into Fenway Park and swept the Red Sox in a four-game series and something that was deemed the Boston Massacre. And they outscored the Red Sox 42-9 to in that process. And as you get into the game, obviously Torres was very solid for the first six innings. Red Sox built a 2-0 lead. Carl Yastrzemski had a solo home run early. Jim Rice drove in a run with a single. Boston was ahead. Torres started out the seventh, got the first batter out. Then he gave up singles to Greg Nettles and Chris Chambliss. And then he retired the next batter. And the ninth-place hitter was a guy by the name of Bucky Dent, a shortstop not really known for his power. But, of course, he ends up hitting a memorable home run off the, over the Green Monster to give the Yankees the lead. Now, Bob Stanley, and obviously Mets fans remember Bob Stanley, who, would, of course, would be part of the New York baseball history books eight years later, relieved Torres and gave up an RBI double to Thurman Munson, and Reggie Jackson hit a home run off of Stanley in the next inning, putting the Yankees up 5-2. to two. What's interesting about this is that at that point, you probably think the game's over. Uh, you know, the Bucky Dan home run, obviously the final nail in the coffin. Yankees had a couple runs, and it looks like it's going to be an easy victory for the New York Yankees. They got Goose Gossage in the, in the game. He relieves Guidry in the seventh inning. And, you know, even though he pitched the final two and a third innings of the game, and we could get in a whole different discussion about what is, you know, uh, the, the role of the reliever and the way the closer has changed, from being a you know a one two three inning guy to a guy that's going in there to get a couple outs or just an inning tops, but but uh, Goose Gossage has gone in there, pitched the final two and the third innings of the game, but he struggled in the eighth inning. He gave up RBI singles to Yastrzemski and then Fred Lynn, and of course it was Lou Pinella who made the heads up play fooling Rick Burleson into holding up on a ball that would end up falling in. That prevented a tying run from scoring. Gossage got through the ninth inning, getting Yastrzemski on a foul pop-up to Greg Nettles. And, of course, Red Sox fans to this day refer to the Yankee shortstop as Bucky fucking Dent. And you, you hear that all through Boston. One of the big moments in Boston Red Sox history is that looked like a year that the Red Sox could be back to the to playoffs, to the World Series, and have a chance to end what at that time was a ridiculous curse of 59 years to that point 
since their last World Series win in 1918. Of course, you know what happens in 1986 and what happens later on with the 2003 and then the Red Sox eventually breaking the curse with a victory in the 2004 World Series. But, you know, obviously you look at what ends up happening. The Yankees made it to the ALCS. They beat Kansas City again, the third consecutive time to the World Series. They ended up beating the Dodgers for the second consecutive time. A couple of interesting things that I don't think a lot of people realize because they talk about Bucky Dent. They talk about the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry. Of course, they brawled with each other several you know times over that span. But two umpires were very well-known umpires that happened to be at that game. The guy behind home plate was none other than Don Denkinger who had his own controversial call in the 1985 World Series. And at third base was Steve Palermo. And, of course, we all know the story about Steve Palermo, how you know he was trying, he was trying to help out. He was paralyzed, uh, trying to intervene in a robbery attempt. And, of course, you know, the book was written. And, you know, obviously, you know, Steve Palermo, very, very good guy, a, a sad and almost tragic story and what ends up happening to him. But he was the umpire at third base in that game. And, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of interesting things going on with that game. And, of course, uh, the Yankees end up winning a World Series, their second straight over to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the Red Sox really aren't heard from again. And that's something that, you know, some people end up looking at. They're like, hey, what happened to the Boston Red Sox? Because they were pretty good throughout uh, the, a good part of the 70s. Of course, they went to the World Series in 75 and were battling with the Yankees for a couple of years there. But, uh, you know, you look at some of the good players, a guy like Yastrzemski is towards the end of the line. He ends up playing until 83. And, you know, they had some very good players, but they were unable to compete with the likes of teams like the New York Yankees. And later on, you know, the Baltimore Orioles and other teams, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers end up becoming uh, important parts of that division. And it's not until 1986 when they got guys like Roger Clemens and, uh, you know, of course, Dwight Evans and Jim Rice still being part of that team. They end up putting it together with the run in the 1986 season. So, you know, with, you know, you get towards the end of the baseball season, you start to think of important games and big games that happen towards the end of the season, one-game playoffs, the whole thing. And, it, you know, it becomes very interesting to see you know, and always remember uh, the Bucky Dent game of 1978 between the Red Sox and the New York Yankees. And staying within the topic of the 1970s, the Mets, of course, had a relief pitcher by the name of Skip Lockwood. And Skip Lockwood uh, had some very good seasons in the latter part of the 70s for the New York Mets and obviously a team that was not very good. But uh, I brought up some very interesting points on my article, johnpielli.com, Bases Empty blog, the whole thing. Of course, find that also on mtrmedia.com slash johnpielli. But Skip Lockwood was a guy that wasn't even drafted as a pitcher. And, you know, had a lot of trials and tribulations before he ended up making the majors. And, you know, he was the Mets closer from 76 to 79. And like I just mentioned, the team was not very good, but he was one of the guys that you kind of look at and kind of appreciate what he actually did during the time that the team was not very good. But he had to reinvent himself, not only as a position player to a pitcher, but from a starting pitcher to a relief pitcher. So I'm going to get into a little bit about Skip Lockwood here. He was signed as an amateur free agent by the Kansas City Athletics in 1964. And, uh, you know, 10 years earlier, Lockwood would have been called a bonus baby. And obviously, you know, for those who remember Sandy Koufax coming up in the 1955 season, when he was signed, he had to be on the major league roster, but was not really ready to pitch and contribute at that level yet. And Skip Lockwood was in the same type of situation. He was drafted as a third baseman, and the Athletics needed to keep him on the roster for the entire 1965 season. And Lockwood was just 18, and he was a third baseman. So the whole season, he managed to get into just 42 games, went four for 33, four runs scored, 
seven walks. He was sent down to the minors expectedly for the 1966 season, but struggled to hit from 66 to 68. Uh, you know, he dabbled with the thought of pitching. He got into a game in 66 and another four in 1967. And after the 1967, he was taken in the Rule 5 draft by the Houston Astros. He didn't make the team, so he was sent back to what was then called the Oakland Athletics. He made a transition that year to become a full-time pitcher, and he was taken after the 1968 season by the Seattle Pilots in the expansion draft. Now, all this ends up happening, but still at the time, he's only 22. He's well-traveled, but he's only 22 years old. He pitched in six games, started three with the original and only Seattle Pilots team in 1969. After the Pilots moved to Milwaukee for the 1970 season, he became a regular starting pitcher on their staff. 1970 saw him go 5-12, and 12, a 430 ERA, 27 games, 26 starts. He lost 15 games each in the next two seasons. And then in 1973, he ends up pitching 37 games, 12 as a starter, but ends up losing 12 more games from a Brewers team that, like I said, was just not very good. But after that, he ends up being traded in a nine-player trade to the California Angels and also involved Clyde Wright. And what ended up happening in 1974 season, Lockwood's with the California Angels. He ends up pitching almost solely as a reliever. He was 2-5, and five, 432 ERA, and 37 games, five starts. But he was injured at the time. He was battling some arm issues. And, you know, one of the things that kind of held him back in his career was the fact that he couldn't stay healthy. And, you know, he was used mostly as a mop-up reliever, but kind of stood out a little bit because it was a situation where they kind of, started to realize and I think other teams started to realize that he probably could be a pretty good reliever if he was given the opportunity that offseason he was traded again this time to the New York Yankees however he didn't make the team out of spring training and was released a week later he signed back with the Oakland Athletics who had a you know who had a thought of maybe making him into a starter again so he signed him to a triple a contract and they used him as a starting pitcher but he struggled nine starts he made he didn't get the job done and kind of as a demotion he was taken off taken out of the Tucson Toros rotation and put into the bullpen. But this was the best thing that ever happened to Skip Lockwood. He, he was re- relieving, allowed him to regain a little bit more zip on his fastball, and he started to strike out hitters at a rate of almost a batter an inning. This is something he wasn't able to do before that. So there was no room for, for him on a major league roster, even though the athletics were kind of happy that they discovered that this guy could be a reliever. They were stuck in a difficult spot. So rather than give Lockwood his release, his contract was sold to the New York Mets with the understanding that the New York Mets were going to use him on their major league roster. And like I said before, like I started out talking about, the Mets were not very good at this time, so they could have used anything they could have possibly gotten. He made three appearances for the Tidewater Tides, and he was in the big leagues with the Mets. He didn't disappoint at all. He went 1-3, 149 ERA in 24 games, 61 strikeouts and 48 in the third innings. 1976 turned out to be his best season. He was 10-7, 267 ERA, 53 games, 19 saves, while striking out 108 batters in 94 and a third innings pitched. So phenomenal job that year, and obviously he started to establish himself. He was decent in 1977, 4 and 8, 338 ERA, 20 saves, 63 games, 84 Ks. And then, of course, 1978, 7 and 13, 357, 15 saves. Uh, let's see, 57 games, 73 innings pitched. And he had some more arm problems during the 1979 season, which was unfortunate. When he was healthy, he was great in 1979. Another 149 ERA in just 27 games. He filed for free agency, had an opportunity really after that year to kind of cash in a little bit and get himself a decent contract. The problem was a lot of teams were wary of his arm woes. 
and he did get a two-year $775,000 contract with the Boston Red Sox for the 1980 season. Unfortunately, his arm was shot. And the Red Sox kind of knew that despite paying him. They thought that, hey, if he could be healthy, he could, he could help out and be part of a team. Like we just mentioned before, the 1978 Boston Red Sox were you know, just about right, ready to make the postseason, win the American League Eastern Division before that one-game playoff against the Yankees. But Lockwood just gets into 24 games in 1980, an over-5 ERA, the only time in his career. He was released before the 1981 season and attempted a comeback with the Denver Bears at the American Association for the Montreal Expos. He struggled there as well and kind of called it quits. His wife ends up writing a book about being a baseball wife. So it's kind of interesting, you know, to see what it's like to be a, a wife of a Major League Baseball player. But I'll tell you, Lockwood was certainly one of the more consistent players of the Mets through those difficult times in the late 70s. And he went from being a third-base prospect to a decent starter to a top closer. So in the end, you kind of look at a guy like Skip Lockwood and realize that he had, he had the ride. He pretty much had a little bit of everything. And that's what you know, I find very interesting in regards to Skip Lockwood. And remember the Mets teams of those times, here's a guy that kind of stood out as far as one of the better players in that organization. But, you know, John Pielli here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take a break. We'll finish up this hour. A lot more stuff going on after this. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. You're listening to MTR Radio, powered by mtrmedia.com. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, where I'm going to get into some of the surprising managerial vacancies that are out there in Major League Baseball. And I think coming into this season, you looked at how a lot of teams seem to be set, at least going forward towards the next season. 
you know, a guy like Terry Collins with the Mets, the thought was, are they going to extend him? Are they not? They ended up extending him. A guy like Eric Wedge was kind of in the same situation with the Seattle Mariners. They ended up letting him go. In my opinion, I thought that was going to be it. You know, you looked at a lot of managers that ended up being held over. I thought a lot of teams were moving forward with the guy that they had. You know, you looked at the Philadelphia Phillies who fired Charlie Manuel during the season, replaced him with Ryan Sandberg, and ended up going with Sandberg for the, the, short, the short and long-term future. So, in my opinion, you looked at possibly Seattle and Washington, and there was probably going to be no more vacancies out there. Now you got the Cincinnati Reds. Now you got the Chicago Cubs. I don't think anybody anticipated to see Dusty Baker fired from the Cincinnati Reds. A lot of our analytics people think it's because of the way he manages. I think it's all about wins and losses. Dusty Baker could have won with that team. He just didn't this year. But they end up letting him go, opening up a probably a desired spot with the Cincinnati Reds, I would assume. And then you go to the other side of it, and you got Dale Swain with the Chicago Cubs who manages a couple years, they end up letting him go. And in my opinion, for no other reason than, than the fact that they just didn't like him. And this is a spot where the Cubs were obviously rebuilding. You saw what happened with Theo Epstein came in there and Jed Hoyer and the moves that they made to get younger and the consistent moving of veteran players for younger players was a sign that this team was not expected to be good this year. So Dale Swain being fired probably wasn't about wins and losses. It was more about fit for the team. And listen, if the Cubs don't feel like he's the manager going forward, then they're probably better off just cutting their ties with him right now, which is what they did. While they did that, it was a little bit of a surprise. It was something that I don't think a lot of us would have expected to see in regards to the Chicago Cubs replacing Dale Swain after two years of managing the club. Two years that the Chicago Cubs were not expected to be good. So he wasn't fired because of wins and losses. He was fired because they want to go and pursue another manager. And the more you hear about it, the more you hear about the talk of the possibility of bringing, back, of bringing Joe Girardi over from the New York Yankees. And, of course, Girardi's contract expires October 31st. And it's interesting to see if he's able to ink or is interested in inking an extension with the New York Yankees before that date. And obviously, Brian Cashman has been out there, and he's been overstated. In fact, that he wants to keep him, you know, managing the Yankees. He wants to bring him back next year, but it's all in the hands of Joe Girardi. And one thing that you heard, at, you know, on, on a number of occasions was the thought of, well, Joe Girardi just wants to go home. He wants to go back to Chicago, where his roots are, where his family is. Well, you know, both of his parents are deceased. He had a brother, I believe, that was living out there that doesn't live in Chicago anymore. So the connections to Chicago are not as interesting as they were before. And, you know, Joe Girardi may want to go to the Cubs. He's just not stating it. It's possible. But I think the longer we get and the longer it gets towards October 31st when his contract with the New York Yankees runs out, I think the more you think that he may be at the very least be willing to listen to the Chicago Cubs and the kind of offer that they may have. I don't think it's about money. It could be. It's a situation where the Cubs will probably pay more for him to manage the Cubs than he would if he went back to returning and managing the New York Yankees. I think that's fair enough to say because Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer want him there. They think he's the guy with the experience that could lead a young team and maybe get this team in the right direction. I think if the Chicago Cubs had a choice of who they wanted to be their manager for the 2014 season, it would be Joe Girardi. In the end, it's going to be up to Joe Girardi and what he wants to do. And if he leaves the New York Yankees, wow. 
I'll tell you, it's going to change the offseason in regards to managerial vacancies because now, in addition to the Washington Nationals and the Seattle Mariners, who you could have said were possibilities, then you throw in the Cincinnati Reds and the Chicago Cubs, which would go through to change to Girardi. And then all of a sudden, the New York Yankees making a change at the helm as the manager. And obviously, you could think of so many different options. Uh, the Yankee fan says, hey, just pride Don Mattingly away from the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, you know, even if the Dodgers win the World Series this year, it's quite a possibility. But I think, I think Mattingly was a little upset. I think Mattingly was a little bothered by the fact that the Yankees didn't make him the manager when, when the opening was out there after Joe Torre was let go. Uh, I think there's a little bit of animosity there, but still it's the Yankees. And it's not just the Yankees because the Yankees are this uh, popular team. It's the Yankees for Don Mattingly because that's where he made his baseball living. He became one of the best Yankees. Obviously not on the Mount Rushmore of the New York Yankees because they've had so many greater players than Don Mattingly. But Don Mattingly was a generation for the New York Yankees for you know the time from you know 1980, mid, early mid-1980s to the late to the mid-1990s, he was the franchise player. Obviously, in his own mind, he'd love to come back to the New York Yankees. The problem is, how much does he want to stay in Los Angeles, and how much do the Los Angeles Dodgers want to keep him in Los Angeles? And I tell you, if Mattingly ends up parting from the Los Angeles Dodgers and goes to the New York Yankees, and Joe Girardi goes from the New York Yankees to the Chicago Cubs, this turns into a wacky offseason because I don't think anybody could have imagined these teams, the New York Yankees, for that matter, the Cincinnati Reds, and obviously the Los Angeles Dodgers, all having new managers going into the 2014 season. And there's there's obviously going to be some guys out there. The Yankee, If the Yankee job is taken by Manningly and the Cub job is taken by Girardi, that leaves the Los Angeles Dodgers, that leaves the Cincinnati Reds, the Washington Nationals, and the Seattle Mariners as far as teams that are going to need new managers next year. Just to throw out a couple random names that have been thrown out there, Joe Espada, who's the third base coach for the, the Miami Marlins for the last two seasons and obviously two years before that with the Florida Marlins, could possibly get some interviews for a man managerial job. A guy in uh, the, for the, the South Florida Sun Sentinel says um, he, he could be pursued for coaching jobs on major league rosters, but I, th I think he's a guy that's built – uh, up a little bit of a resume for what he's, what he's done as a coach. is getting a lot of uh, respect and credit for what he's done and could possibly be a major league manager in the, in the, in the future. Uh, the Blue Jays hitting coach Chad Matola and first base coach Dwayne Murphy uh, are not going to return next season. The Padres are going to retain their entire coaching staff. And the Arizona Diamondbacks have let go Charles Nagy. So those are just typical moves that you hear in regards to coaches being let go at the end of the year. But back to the Yankees, because uh, the possibility that Girardi leaves is getting stronger and stronger each day. And every day goes by, every day is more of a possibility that Girardi may end up uh, going to the Chicago Cubs. So the Yankees have to think about possible candidates to take the job. And internal candidates, Pete McCannon, uh, Tony Pena, who, of course, was interviewed along with Mattingly and Girardi for the vacant job when uh, Torrey was let go. Don Wakamatsu, who's still in the Yankees organization. And Dave Miley are also possibly on the list. And, of course, guys like Dusty Baker and retired managers such as Tony La Russa and Lou Pinella are all going to get some consideration. If, if they never get an interview, they're going to get talk in regards to Twitter and stuff like that as far as people throwing their names out there as possibities. Personally, I don't see La Russa ever managing again. 
And I would be very, very surprised to see Pinnell take another managerial job, considering, you know, as done as he seemed when he was managing in Chicago with the Cubs. It looks like he was finished. It looks like he was happy there. It looks like he, he, he was just kind of content with retiring. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you spend that many years in baseball and you're a manager for that many years after you're done playing, then, you know, it is probably safe to say that maybe – uh, it, it's time to just ride off into the sunset. But there's going to be possibilities out there. A guy that could be a possibility for the Cincinnati Reds job is pitching coach Brian Price. And obviously the situation in Cincinnati was not that expected. I think it was a situation where Dusty Baker and Walt Jockerty had their issues and they had a little bit of a blowout and it resulted with um, Baker losing his job. So I don't think Jockerty was actually looking to replace him. Um, coming into, you know, after the season ended, even the way it did. But, you know, now the Reds are looking out there, and obviously they're going to look through all the regular candidates and, you know, are going to interview first base coach Billy Hatcher, bench coach Chris Spire. And Spire, of course, was a, was a, a Baker hire. Uh, Barry Larkin, who was obviously working for ESPN now after working for MLB Network, getting into the Hall of Fame, is not going to consider it. They, they said that they're not, uh, the, you know, the two sides haven't even talked about it. It's something that the Reds aren't looking into, and Barry Larkin isn't looking to becoming a major league manager anytime soon. But, you know, Brian Price is an interesting possibility. I think they're going to go through internal candidates and then, of course, go through some of the other uh, possibilities. And one guy who obviously Met fans love, and Met fans love to talk about all the time, and they think you got this group of people that are so insistent that he is going to be the next manager for the New York Mets, Wally Backman. Where does he rank in all of this? Is he going to get calls? Do the Washington Nationals reach out to him? Do the Cincinnati Reds reach out to him? Is he a possibility in Seattle? Is he a possibility in any of these sudden managerial openings? Because, you know, Wally Backman has built up a resume. You know, the, the Wally detractors, the people that don't like Wally, are, will be a little ignorant, in fact, if they, if they didn't point out the fact that this guy has done a good job as the manager of the Mets AAA team in Las Vegas this past season in Buffalo the year before and with Binghamton the year before that and, of course, with Brooklyn four years ago. So he, he, is, he has gotten his some experience. He's a guy that should get some consideration, if not for a managerial job, uh, probably as a kind of a go-to guy, a bench coach, or at least something on a major league coaching staff. He's, he's, done, he, he's done his time. And uh, the Mets may or may not be looking to go to Backman. I don't think it's a possibility. I don't think the Mets will ever. Uh, hire Wally Backman as their manager. I think it's something that, you know, as long as Sandy Alderson's here, it's something he doesn't want to do. And even if Terry Collins gets fired in the middle of next season, I don't think Backman would be hired as a replacement. But it doesn't mean Backman doesn't get consideration in a job. Possibly Seattle. You know, quiet organization there. Doesn't get a lot of national media attention. Could kind of go kind of under the radar there and establish himself, I think it's a possibility. If Wally Backman was a manager by the time uh, next season started, I wouldn't be so shocked. So different things to consider in regards to major league managers, the whole thing. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this first hour. Thanks, of course, to Bill Zeltman. And, you know, a lot of stuff to get into in hour number two right here on EMTR Radio Network. Back after this. <laughs> 